Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast channel from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Next, we'll be talking to Tara Skirtu about her poem, Offering, which appeared in the spring issue of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Tara Skirtu is an American poet and writer, writing coach, and public speaker. She is a two-time U.S. Fulbright grantee and recipient of two Academy of American Poets Prizes, a Marsha Keach Poetry Prize, and a Robert Pinsky Global Fellowship. Her poems are published internationally and translated into 10 languages. She is the author of the chapbook Skirtu, Romania, and the poetry collection The Amoeba Game. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Boston University. Tara Skirtu, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. Um, I wonder if you could begin by describing where you're living now, where you're calling from, so we can have a sense of place for this conversation. Sure. I am living in downtown Bucharest, Romania, um, currently on curfew, and <laughs> um, it's evening. It's it's morning where you are. It's evening where I am. This is where I'm at. That sounds nice. Uh, good to be could be inside during the lockdown, I suppose. Um, thank you so much for setting the scene. Would you read your poem from the spring issue for us? Of course. Offering. It was the first time I'd lived with a man, and I wanted him to translate the name of our street. He was holding my cold fist in his own, and we were on Oferande, in the middle of unpaved Bragadiru, Romania, on our way home. It's something you give to get something, like a sacrifice, like what you do for a god. I clawed at the cracked clay with bare hands, planted blood-brown calla lilies, daffodils, irises, pink peonies, white hyacinths. I transplanted a living wall of evergreens, lined the walk with lavender. I watered what I'd buried and waited. After the rains, Ofrande became a lake. I'd climb along the unknown neighbor's fence, his silent dog following me, pausing when I paused to estimate the depth of the mud, length of my jump, until one day I was there and she wasn't. And that was the fall I left Offering Street with some soil-caked pots my raincoat, patio set for two. In the front yard, under the hood of the gas grill, I left my keys. The man loved to grill, so I'd bought him one and rolled it into the garden I'd sown. That's great. Thank you so much for reading that for us. That was was beautiful. Would you tell us how you came to write this poem, what inspired it, what the process was like? Sure. Um, this was a monumental poem for me, this quiet little poem, because um, it's the first poem I left, or I, I left, 
Um, <laughs> first poem I wrote after leaving my marriage and I moved to Romania for um, uh, a relationship, something I'd never done in my life. And it was a relationship I needed to leave. And then I found myself in Bucharest, <laughs> of all places, um, alone. Um, and I was mourning the loss of my marriage while also celebrating my ability to love completely because it's something I had learned that I was able to do um, and just coming to terms with those two things and um, how, how um, my life had split in that moment. And this was the first poem I was able to write about that. And it was a challenging poem for me because I was really angry and I, I didn't want an angry poem. Um, I always knew I would write a poem about living on this street because offering street, I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I was able to write it. I love to hear you say that it's sort of monumental and also quiet because those are my favorite kinds of poems and even stories. I think when they're about these like extremely pivotal, heavily emotional fraught moments, but in these really quiet, quiet visuals, quiet images, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as I'm sure you know, The Common publishes writing with a modern sense of place. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role setting plays in this poem, Offering Street. Um, And and is place important to you when you're writing in general? Uh, Well, I think to me, place is people. Um, So place is a bit of everything in what I write. I mean, a lot of my poems take place in Romania now. Um, I mean, everything that I, I've had three poems in the common and they're all in Romania. So yes, um, I think wherever I am, I'm probably going to write about and whoever I love, I'm probably going to write about. Um, and, and actually the, the place of this poem is so localized because it's, it's, it's this street and um, talking about process a moment ago, the hardest part f- for this poem had to do with place and placement. I was stuck for three days straight on a prepositional phrase. I was trying to describe how I would climb around this giant lake in the street when it rained along this fence. Um, And the focus on place was what this poem was centered on, but also the trickiest part of getting this poem just right. Yeah, that is such a great moment in the poem, crawling along the fence. Um, It was in the poem, not in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would love to hear how you first came to live in Romania. I think you mentioned that a little bit and just what that transition was like and how it's impacted your work over the years. Sure. Um, this is a question I get all the, well, during, um, the pandemic, I don't get it so much. Mm-hmm. I'm in my apartment, but whenever I leave my house, it's a question I get daily. Um, usually people are very confused by me being here. Um, and I guess it starts with my last name is a misspelling of a Romanian name. And my great-grandparents on my dad's side came from the Transylvania region of Romania, and they came to the U.S. during the early 1900s. We know nothing about their family history. Um, They didn't talk about it after they came over, and they met after they came over. But my dad, uh, who is um, always he was reading us stories and poems and writing uh, stories and poems and reading them to us. He told us stories about his Romanian grandmother who ran the lottery in a Romanian neighborhood um, in Michigan. And I was always 
listening to these stories and I was writing about family at the time, as I often am. And I was at Boston University getting my MFA and there was a fellowship where you could go anywhere in the world. You had to pick a place and you had to say why. And the person who donated the money for this Robert Pinsky Fellowship, Global Fellowship, wanted you to go to a place you'd never been before, preferably where you did not speak the language and didn't know anyone, basically just show up uh, and just figure out what to do. And it had to inspire you to write um, Tall Order. And I thought, what if I went to Romania? And so I, I went to Romania. And I was there for two to three months. I can't remember the exact amount of weeks. And it was this crazy trip full of synchronicities. I landed in Sibiu, Romania, the week of an international poetry festival. I had gotten an Airbnb because my dad's brother said he thought that a bunch of skirtus came from there. Turns out they did not. (laughs) (laughs) But I got invited to an international poetry festival. And then the rest of my time there became this big poetry tour of festivals and at universities. And I got translated and it was amazing. So I came back for a Fulbright two years later. And I put everything I have into everything I do. And I work so much that they gave me another Fulbright the following year. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And then life happens, you know, when you're in a place for a while. And so I'm still here. That's so great. I love that, that you showed up and it was just poetry festivals all the time. That sounds just incredible. Um, Do you feel, I wonder like how, learning the foreign language or that feeling of disorientation? Like, do you feel like that has shown up in your poems a lot? Oh, I think, of course. And, you know, it showed up the most in love because, of course, you know, another thing that that drives us to place and places is love. And, you know, I I came here, poetry happened, but I actually fell in love here the first time I came here. And in my experience, when, when I when I fall in love, I want to learn a language, whether it's, you know, a love language within the same language or a different language. And it was a combination of poetry and love that, that made me want to learn the language, but it also um, gave me such an experience with the limitations of language and um, the, the spectrum of, I don't know how certain qualities of of ourselves are um, the volume gets turned up and the volume gets turned down. And it's such an experience to get used to not understanding things when you're used to being able to understand everything around you. I think that's been also um, really essential to the poems I've been writing too, because I'm, I'm learning, I'm teaching myself Romanian. I have been for, for years. Um, and I'm incorporating some some Romanian um, into my poems when it feels like there's no English to substitute for what I'm trying to say. So the answer is yes. It, it language is uh, such a beautiful, complicated, limiting, um, amazing thing. Yeah, and just intertwined into every everything we do. Yeah, all our relationships yeah. and writing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we've published three of your poems over the years at The Common, and to me, they all seem to touch on relationships and on like the work or idea of writing, and they're all very firmly rooted in Romania and what you see or hear or experience there. So now that I've ruined them by summarizing, I wonder <laughs> if you could tell us what patterns you find in your own writing, what subjects and feelings you return to time and again. It's hard to talk about poetry in terms of subject, isn't it? Poetry is always, mm. it's always so much more than about. Um, but I i have realized that I write, there is love in every poem I write. I write about, I write about, I'm saying the dangerous about word, people I love. And, um, you, you know, there's so much. <laughs> metaphor and symbolism in the simple things we do every day. Like in offering uh, the poem I read that's in the common, I when I was leaving, uh, when I was moving out, I, I said, well, where do you want me to put the keys? And I, I was told, put the keys in the grill. <laughs> thing to tell somebody. <laughs> And this grill was this kind of, you know, in the middle of this garden that I was planting. And also, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit off road right now to say that I've been thinking about this poem all day, offering and offering street and how poems come about. Like when I asked, this goes back to language. I asked, well, what is, what is ofrande in English? I felt such a need to know what the street I lived on meant. And it was actually described to me as a sacrifice when it's really an offering. <laughs> and then mm. the symbolism of that, of, of living on a street called offering, which was described to me as a sacrifice, which in the end ended up feeling like such a sacrifice and an offering. And I had this little plot of land in front of the house. I'd never had that before in my life. I've lived in bedrooms uh, until my early 30s in Boston because it's so expensive in Boston. Um, I had a plot of land and I started gardening and I didn't know how to garden. And the the worse things got, the more I gardened. And I think that planting a garden is the most hopeful thing in the world, perhaps. And I think we do this. I think we plant a garden with every poem we write. I think writing poetry really is the act of planting a garden. And a poem is a garden. And so writing this this poem was like m making a garden happen in my life when, when everything felt like it was failing around me. I'm trying to return to the original idea of the question you asked me, um, which I, I got very off road, but I'm okay with that. Do you remember? Yeah, no. Um, I, I mean, I think that you basically answered it. I also really love what you said about like, it's always so much more than, than what it's about. Um, that about is such a, um, a simple way to talk about what's actually in a poem. Um, yeah. yeah. I just, if there are like subjects or feelings you return to oh, or keep coming up, you're getting me back on track. <laughs> the original thought, which was the subjects and feelings to me, they're just simple daily interactions and things I notice. And, but, but there's always a complication that cannot be explained in words. And that's the trick of poetry. Really? I think, um, is to explain something that can't be said in words, in words, which for instance, like, okay, put, put the key in the grill. What, 
the symbolism and metaphor of having this grill, which was an offering I had given out of pure love because the person I loved, loved to grill. And it was in the middle of my garden. (laughs) And I put the keys in this grill on my way out the door for the last time, closed the grill and thought, damn, this is going to be in a poem because (laughs) what, what a metaphor. But so I guess I put, you know, I just pay attention to the things that are said and the things that we do and how I feel and, you know, try to form a chain of associations, whether it be a memory from 20 years ago, um, you know, um, something I see walking down the street. So I think, yeah, that's, I just use what I can use what my body experiences. Yeah. You're, you're reminding me of, uh, you know, some of the best writing advice I've ever heard, which is just to be a really good observer and to really pay attention to things when they happen and and file them away. Yeah. Um, When I was teaching a a group of teenagers a couple of years ago and um, I was asking them, well, how do we experience the world? And of course, this, I don't ask leading questions, but this one, I I knew what I wanted, (laughs) where I wanted them to get at. And it was all about the senses, right? So they're saying all these really complicated, smart things. And I was trying to, you know, get it to be simplified. And at a certain point, I said, well, think about it, really. How how do we experience the world? And I just walked into a wall. (laughs) (laughs) And they started laughing and they were like, I said, how did I experience that wall? And they said, oh, touch. smell it and so yeah that that that's what it is it's we we have these beautiful painful temporary um bodies it's quite amazing yeah I think that part of that is also just being open to like noticing those things instead of just like the logistics of walking into a wall but like paying attention to how it feels in your body or or what the result is or how emotionally it feels if there's a metaphor in it like being being open to to those experiences as a part of writing yeah yeah Exactly. Like experiencing things for the first time, which is something we do as kids all the time, but as adults, we get used to not doing that. Yeah, absolutely. What what do you find trips you up when you're writing? Is there part of the process you really have to struggle through or does it depend on the poem? It always depends on the poem, but every time I, I, I'm trying to think, do I get, I get tripped up thinking, is this working all the time? (laughs) Um, But every time I start a poem, I never know what I'm doing. And I used to think that this was a bad thing. And now I know that it's a wonderful thing. Um, And I trust because I've done it before that I know I'll do it again. And I just ask myself, well, I don't know. I never know what I'm doing when I write a poem, but I know that I've learned things over the years and I'm learning things every day about like, how to be as specific as possible, um, you know, to, to say it as clearly as possible, try not to explain. Um, and I just, I write everything by hand for the most part. Although lately I've been learning, I have a couple poems, maybe a few that I've actually started on the computer, but usually I write by hand and then I move to the computer and then I play the enter, enter, delete game which is line breaks and then just figure out the shape of the poem. And I'm, 
I'm anxious about just about everything in the world except for writing poetry. That's so nice to hear. I, I find it, uh, I mean, as you say, like, like that there isn't like a really strict process or, or, you know, specifications for what a poem should be. And I personally, as a prose writer, find that terrifying. But I can see that, you know, it, it just leaves everything open to you. Like everything is a possibility as long as you can believe that you'll get there on in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, I think um, I don't write every day. I don't even always write every month. Um, and every once in a while, I'll get a little tripped up in my head to answer your question as well about that, about is this, a, am I wasting time? And then I just say, Tara, poems take time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, um, I, I think I've heard a lot of people talk about how like the time when you're not writing and you're just absorbing the world or as, as we talked about sort of observing it, like that also counts as writing time. <laughs> so true. The first time I heard this, I was in high school. It's so funny to think about this because um, I was at a high school that it was a magnet school in Florida. And it had a strict dress code. If you didn't have a belt and you had belt loops, you got a detention. I do <laughs> not wear belt loops to this day. I got a detention and my economics teacher gave me a detention for forgetting to put on a belt one morning. Um, but my English teacher, she said something like, you're, you're writing even when you're not writing. And I remember thinking, yeah, right. Like <laughs> this mm-hmm. kind of thought is not going to write this essay to get this grade. Um, and what's funny about her is eventually I ended up having to leave that school because I had piercings in my face, which was not allowed. And I was covering them up with a band aid. And that teacher mm-hmm. told me I was a distraction to the education in the room. And look, look, I turned out to be a poet. <laughs> Uh, I love that um, you had to have a belt if you had belt loops and you were like, I'll just get a facial piercing. This will be fine. (laughs) Yeah, I have belt loops right now and no belt. Um, But yeah, I have learned that um, so much of the writing happens when you're not writing. It's so wonderful. And and to me, a lot of it happens when I'm taking walks or when I'm in the shower. And it's it's not that I'm getting the exact words, but it's I I get the association um, and I, I figure out, oh my goodness, I think that this connects to this. <gasps> Great. And and it usually works. It's these moments of in-betweens, but so much writing happens when we're not writing. It's totally part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. For me, those epiphanies usually come when I'm driving, which is just like really inconvenient, <laughs> very unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's something about being in motion too. Trains are yeah. really good for writing, especially yeah, absolutely. They're, they're really slow here. <laughs> So you're a writing coach now, and I know you taught at Boston University and and even taught composition to incarcerated students through BU's prison education program. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about how you experience teaching creative writing. Like what are the challenges of balancing traditional instruction and and something more raw, like inspiration or creativity? Yeah. I mean, well, teaching creative writing, like when people ask, how do you teach creative writing? It's like an impossible question to answer, just like (laughs) 
people ask, why is a poem so important, which is something I ask myself every day, and I don't know how to answer it. Um, Both of those questions, I don't know how to answer. And um, just like how I don't know how to write a poem, every time I'm working on a new poem or essay or article with somebody, um, it's going through it. And, but a big part of teaching creative writing is creating a space for people to give themselves permission to write about what they need to write about. And then, you know, of course there are techniques, right? Editing techniques. Okay. How to enter into something in an interesting way. Um, how you can say something, um, to use simple, specific language. Don't overload things with adjectives, you know, things like that. But really it's, it's, we are, listen, we're natural storytellers. We do this from the time we know how to talk. We are told stories as kids. And I think, honestly, especially with poetry, I think that People become afraid of poetry. Uh, A lot of people say, I don't get poetry or like, I'm not a poetry person. And this happens at some point in our education um, of poetry. And it's really just uh, finding ways to help people feel more open, to have more permission and to access um, the narratives that they want to tell and I do a lot of listening when I teach. I talk a lot about the writing that's happening because it's different when you're talking about something that's written on the page. When you leave the page, if you're stuck and you leave the page and you're like, well, well, actually this, ha- this, this has to do with something that happened to me. And then they go into explaining the thing that happened to them. And that is actually the thing that's going to be on the page. So there's something about the natural state of, you know, when you're sitting across from a friend and they say something and they make you laugh and you are just laughing in public and you're not aware of yourself. You're just a hundred percent in the moment. That's how you get when you're telling a story in the moment. And it, and so what I do is I listen when people start telling the story of what they're trying to write. And I write down sometimes exactly what they say. Um, so listening is a big part of teaching creative writing. That's really, it's just so interesting to hear you say that. Cause I would say like, uh, at the common, we do a lot of editorial work with, with, with our prose writers. Like we might, um, accept a story and then, um, work with the author to get the ending right or the beginning or change the language and, and that kind of thing. And I think that we, we often do exactly what you're saying, which is like, have them tell you what they think the story is doing and then help them sort of figure out what what's not on the page and get it, get it back in there. And it it sounds exactly like what you're saying. Yeah, Exactly. Because by the way, I think it's really wonderful and generous. Uh, It's not so common that (laughs) I'm never easy, but it's not so common that the comment I had to does. (laughs) Uh, It's wonderful because, you know, sometimes there's, there are stories that are, that are just about there, but they're not quite figured out yet. And I love that you take the time to help, writers figure them out, uh, instead of saying just a simple hard no. Um, and, and editing is another thing. I edit live with people. Um, and I, I think that also editing is a, okay. So if I, if I made a circle with one hand and a circle with the other hand and one circle is editing in my right hand and revision is in my left hand, um, they are two separate things. But if I move the circles closer together, they overlap and editing and revision overlap. 
because revision mm-hmm. is literally just to see again. And there are no rules to revision, just like there are no rules to writing, but there are rules to editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So another thing I do is I just walk through live, um, you know, through a, a conversational exchange while we're looking at the text. It's like, and, and, you know, this is also, I think, so important is people think there are so many rules, especially with poetry. And I say when we're when we're working on a poem, we're playing, we're playing with the poem, we're playing, we're going to figure it out. Let's see. Um, and it takes pressure off. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, uh, yeah, just to speak to what you're saying about uh, the common working with authors, it's just it's our favorite part of it. And I think we wish we could do more and more of it. Um, there's, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, but I mean, that's definitely, that's the fun part of being an editor is, is finding something in the submission queue and, and really bringing it, yeah, bringing it to like a final published state. Yeah. This makes me so happy because, um, this kind of editorial dynamic actually changed my whole writing life. Um, and, uh, Kelly Davio is an editor who used to be with the Los Angeles Review and, what, at the very beginning of my career, I sent something and um, it got rejected. And I think it was the second or third time. I can't quite remember, but they, they told me submit again. And I just want to say to everybody who happens to be listening, if an editor tells you to submit again, submit again, because they're not trying to do you any favors, uh, really. And a lot of people don't submit again. I submitted again and I had this poem coming and going. And it, that's the name of it. And the editor, Kelly, wrote me back and she worked on the poem with me. And then she published it. And actually, because I got rejected by that magazine, and then I sent back because she encouraged me. And then she worked with the poem on me and she published me um, years later. That's actually how I ended up getting my book published because that editor supported my work throughout my career. She recognized that I had potential in the very beginning and she paid attention to my poems. And then she published me throughout my career and she ultimately wanted my book. And it came from a rejection and and an editor then not rejecting my work and being willing, no, not willing, offering. (laughs) I'm being cheesy today. um, to, To work with me on a poem to get it published. So it's amazing. And I'm so great. I love the common. Um, I just, it's, and it's such a sexy magazine. The covers are brilliant. The editors are great. I, I, and I'm not just saying this, I'm always honest. So we appreciate that. (laughs) I love, I love hearing that story about Kelly Davio. Um, I, I think that's like, that's how the submission process is supposed to work. That's how editors want it to work. That's how submitters want it to work. Um, you know, for it to be a real collaboration and then to, and then to last. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say that, that we're the same, you know, we're huge fans of our writer's work and, you know, and it's great that because place is so important, right? Our lives revolve around place. And I just love the idea of a magazine centered around um, the common, the town common, just the the places in our lives, the places of our lives. Yeah, I was sort of inspired by the idea of how, how people are always telling a story and then they say that could only happen here. Like it's mm-hmm. that sort of energy of, of the uniqueness of, of yeah. the stories that happen where you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very helpful during lockdown to be able to be transported to all these different places through, through literature. I know, right? I, I, I read a poem recently 
um, that is just that to be transported in a time in which we cannot transport uh, through imagination. Um, Louise Gluck has this new poem in the New Yorker, a recent issue. It's called Song. And it's wonderful. That's great. I was going to ask you about Louise Glick, if you don't mind. Um, I I saw in your bio that um, you studied with her when you were at Boston University. And obviously, a few weeks ago, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And then I discovered just how beloved she is among poets. Um, Would would you talk a little bit about working with her and and what impact you think she had on your development as a poet? Of course. Um, Louise uh, is one of my main teachers. I studied with mostly with Lloyd Schwartz, Robert Pinsky, uh, Louise Gluck, and a little bit with Frank Bedard. And Louise um, is, I, I, I was scared to meet Louise at first. Um, she's very private. She's the most private person I've ever met, actually. Um, and when we, but she, she's so generous. When we had workshop with her, I wanted to write down everything she said. Um, she she's so simply profound as is her poetry and we would meet at at her home to to go over poems everyone had to meet at her home so she would get to know you a little before you did that so we wouldn't meet her the first month or so and she would give us these prompts that were really open and usually prompts don't do much for me Um, but basically it would create um, she would say something like, you know, think about using these three words. Um, think about a piece of music. Think about this for an epigraph. And it basically just got you thinking. Uh, and then all of a sudden you'd be researching um, and you would write something completely surprising. And she's so particular with a poem. Um, I had this this poem that's the first poem in my book. It's called Shoricel, which is a Romanian word. It's the diminutive for mouse. Um, she helped me so much. She told me this would make a good first poem in a book. And I, I made it that. But for months, she wasn't sure about my line breaks. And we weren't, I wasn't changing any word in the poem. Um, but I was trying every mathematical combination of line breaks and bringing them to her. And after months of this um, and many pages, at one point she just said to me, I think I liked the first one best. (laughs) And it taught me so much, actually. It taught me, you know, I do that all the time because I write a lot of short poems now, not intentionally. And I try every mathematical combination because um, a, a big part I've learned through, through her is trying out every option because you're either going to find the better option or you're going to realize that the option you have now is the best option for this particular poem. But, but Louise is amazing. Um, I, I was actually at her house when she had the internet installed. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize what a monumental moment this was. And I got to watch her, um, on Google. <laughs> and and it was like time traveling, watching this moment. Um, it was kind of unbelievable to me to see someone, you know, on, on the internet for the first time. Um, <laughs> um, and I just, I have so much love for, for Louise and Louise is an incredible um, 
teacher. And when when she won the Nobel, I had experienced more joy that day than I had in months. And everybody was so happy on Twitter, the whole writing community. And then I tweeted a picture of myself toasting Louise with a, um, a glass of bubbly. And this news agency, DW News, asked if I would do a live interview. <laughs> and the next time I, I felt like, well, I couldn't say no. But it was the last thing I wanted to do was be live on the news at almost midnight. <laughs> uh, and and then there I was, but I got to just talk about how wonderful Louise is. So that was great. Wow, that does sound really special. Scary, but also really special. Uh, so speaking of Twitter, um, speaking of, you know, being stuck in lockdown, um, back in March in the early days when we were all freaking out, you started something called the International Poetry Circle, and it got very popular very fast. I wonder if you could tell our listeners about it and how they can join in if they want to. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Um, so yeah, it was during the very beginning stages of the pandemic in which we were realizing how serious this was and that we needed to isolate ourselves. And I had been traveling every two to three weeks for the most part for the past year for poetry events internationally. And I had returned to Bucharest, um, was quarantining, and I went to get some food to quarantine further <laughs> And it was awful outside. There were there was nobody. Somebody skateboarded by wearing a mask. One car pulled up to the street and the woman in the passenger seat had a mask. And it, I realized this is a whole new world. And it just felt like I had been dropped. And I'm sure a lot of us feel like this into a completely different world without the language or um, knowledge on how to be in this world. And it felt so lonely and sad and isolating, especially, you know, me being here. If anyone had told me several years ago, you're going to move to Romania for a relationship and then divorce, and then there's going to be a pandemic and you're going to be on lockdown. I would have laughed my ass off. <laughs> so I'm, I returned home and I was about to coach a client in another country online. And I thought, this is horrible. This whole, this, we're feeling really bad right now. We need each other. And I thought, what would make me feel better? What would make other people feel better? And I thought about kindergarten and I thought about circle time and how you sit around and you hear stories and how during the hardest times of my life, um, the things that have made me feel the best and the safest are, it's when a, a moment when a friend said, Tara, I don't really know what to do. Do you want me to read you a poem? And so I just propped, I, I, I wasn't dressed up. I, I propped my phone on my bookshelf. I sat on my couch and I just started talking about this. And then I recorded myself reading a poem and I did my session. And then after my session, I saw that um, Greg Santos in Canada had recorded a poem and used the hashtag International Poetry Circle because I said Poetry Circle and actually helped me cement this hashtag. And then people all over the world started recording poems and it was wonderful. And then I stayed up until about 4 a.m. every night, you know, trying to keep it going and to host people and to do what I could with my platform to, um, you know, read in translation and share the work of poets from around the world. And it just was incredible. And then singers, songwriters, and actors started doing it. And then, of course, um, 
I learned a big lesson, which, you know, we're learning all the time. I learned, okay, well, most of these videos aren't accessible because they don't have captions. So um, the community on Twitter helped me learn how to make good captions and the importance of always making things as accessible as possible. And and that's something that I'm continuing to do. So it's International Poetry Circle. Um, You can use the hashtag International Poetry Circle, or we have now an official account, um, thanks to Mark Anthony Owen, who has this wonderful poetry archive um, out of the UK. It's called I Am a Poet, but I Am Like Iambic Pentameter, I-A-M-B. (laughs) Um, when so many videos started coming in, Mark wrote me and said, you need some kind of social media account. And I was just overwhelmed. And Mark created one for me. So it's at INT Poetry Circle. Uh, And it's forever. It's ongoing. And you can record a poem you write. You can record a a favorite poem. And just post it to any social media and use the hashtag. And if you post it to Twitter, you um, you can tag at INT Poetry Circle. And I want to say one thing. I'm always trying to um, talk about how poetry is for everybody. And um, I experienced something really interesting when the Poetry Circle happened is many poets started saying, this is International Poetry Circle. It's poets reading poems. And I was like, this is partly why poetry stays within poets, because it's not poets reading their own poems. It's for everybody. So International Poetry Circle is poets reading poems, but it's also everyone reading any poem you love. I really love that, how it just opens up. Um, It really also captures, I think, something that I have experienced, and I think that probably you have experienced as well, which is that uh, Twitter as a writing community has really been so valuable during lockdown as a way to just you know, support what is already a very solitary existence, which is writing, (laughs) and then even more solitary during a lockdown. Um, I wonder, you know, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, yeah. Twitter for the international community. Yeah, yeah. And and for specifically, like, you know, writing Twitter, literary Twitter. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter more than I should be. I'd probably (laughs) probably have another poetry book if I wasn't on Twitter the amount I am. But I mean, I, I am pretty isolated over here. I talk to, I think, maybe two or three people in Bucharest, I maybe <laughs> uh, even before the pandemic, maybe I see one person a month. So to me, the the international well writing community on Twitter, well, it keeps me connected to um, where I'm from. It it has allowed me to build beautiful friendships. Um, I just think it's the best social media for um, writers. They should pay me because I get so many people on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, you know, I, I hear people saying all the time how negative Twitter is, and there is certainly a lot of um, nasty stuff happening on Twitter. But I just feel like in the writing community, in the literary community, it's just people supporting each other and being excited about each other's work. And I think, you know, now more than ever, that that's just so nice to see, and we and that we really need it. Um, I wonder uh, to wrap to wrap things up. Would you read one more poem for us? Um, a, a poem that we that the common published called Bar Poem. Sure. Thank you for asking. Oh, there's a there's a pic. So I'm on the common site, and there's a picture of a margarita. It looks wonderful. <laughs> Bar poem. I'm here on the patio, no appetite, drinking a salty margarita. I feel my liver. Ignore it like last night's glass of water. 
I'm tired of writing you down when I should be writing poems about place. Dusk hits beyond the man playing the red accordion on the corner, and the strays of Yash bark out a score backed by dissonant frequencies of the evening bells. This morning, I took a walk and found a noseless man pumping gypsy love songs on his accordion. I stared into the holes of his face and thought about the girl with the green ribbon around her neck. Had you read the story backwards, we might not have lost our heads. It's late. What time is it? I ask a poet who isn't you. There's time enough, he says. Thanks so much for reading that to wrap us up. And and Tara, thanks so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. Listeners, you can read Tara's poem offering and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.